Evening, Dan. Evening, Emma. How are you? Welcome back. I'm very. Thank you very much. How you been? Yeah, well, I'm I'm all good. I hope you're well rested. You've had your you have you had your off season, and now you're ready to um, yeah get going in the build up for uh, for I, I don't know actually. Are we having time off during the World Cup, or are we going to just keep going during the World Cup now? Or is that sort of our um, our rest period too? Yes, good question. I don't. I I mean, the games are absolutely relentless. Drink up is four a day. Uh, I suspect. I'm trying to think. I think the last kickoffs at seven, so maybe we can squeeze one in beforehand. But yeah, it's going to be. Uh, it's, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to work out as we go. Um, it's going to be a, an odd World Cup for a number of reasons. I think we could be doing a bit of second screen, couldn't you? you? Could be watching the game, listening to us, pretending that we're actually providing value to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> just turn into a commentary duo after a period of time on Mexico versus Poland or, or whatever else is on. <laughs> yeah, well, it was I was I was actually going to be out there for a little bit, but just work commitments otherwise mean I'm probably not. But there's a few people in our team that are going to be out there. So I'm sure they'll be sending me lots of pictures and snaps from the games and, and elsewhere. So it should be fun for them. Yeah, it should be, should be fun. be interested to hear how they, how they get on. Um, but yeah, I thought, obviously, there's a few things to, to catch up on in, in my absence. Um, the one, one of which, which I'm surprised just, doesn't die is is European Super League, um, which I think is worth worth discussing because obviously the news in the in the last couple of weeks is that they've now appointed I think it's like a, an agency or, or certainly a CEO from an agency to, to kind of um, lead up um, the the organisation if you like and there's there's talk around being relaunched uh, with promotion relegation, which obviously is the the kind of thing that at least Juve, Barca and, and Real Madrid think was, was the main stumbling block of or main reason why it failed the first time. Uh, but talk us through what, there's obviously been a few legal cases, a few judgments made and so on. So where are we at in the whole kind of legal sphere of the European Super League? Well, I'll try and make it as, um, yeah, as interesting and as useful as um, as I can without mentioning too many um, court names and um, competition law regulations, etc. But yeah, it, it's interesting all round now because... Um, I think it was back in uh, May, um, the, I think it was the A22 entity um, asked Spanish court to refer particular questions um, of competition law based on UEFA having a conflict of interest, effectively as the um, organiser and the gatekeeper um, of European football, uh, club football. Um, and that, that referral was effectively made, if I remember correctly, in, in July. Um, so on the, the Court of Justice, European Court of Justice website, there is um, uh, a referral with all of the relevant questions. I'll post that up afterwards if anyone cares to have a look. And obviously then the more recent element, so going back one stage but forward also at the same time, is the reports are that there will be some type of resolution. I, I think the resolution will effectively be the Court of Justice will um, answer the, the questions, the preliminary questions that have effectively been asked of European law in that first quarter of 23, then for this potentially then for the Spanish court to interpret those answers um, accordingly. And, you know, whether the practicalities might be that everything comes down in favour of the, the Super League entity, um, there's always a query about whether actually um, that makes any difference. I think if they were to come down in favour of UEFA, I, I wonder whether the query then is that UEFA can then bring disciplinary measures against Real Barca and, and Juventus potentially, um, because at the moment that looks to have sort of been pushed to the background at the moment, pending the outcome of um, uh, of the preliminary questions. And 
the interesting thing with the yeah the the announcement about uh, you know chief exec or um, an individual that's now going to in a way I guess be the mouthpiece for um, a new um, a new I guess marketing drive in a way to try and alleviate the previous concerns that a lot of the football fans and stakeholders had was around as you said relegation um, he calls it uh, actually now that any Super League would have to have an open format that um, permanent membership of the Super League would be off the table, um, which again is, I think, an interesting one um, because that was obviously a fundamental pillar, really, effectively. He interestingly mentioned also that he thinks the Super League launched in time for the 24-25 season. Now, I was having a quick look on the UEFA website because remember when we talked about the Swiss model, the format, how things were going to work, that was effectively um, in May 22, I believe, in time for the 20... I think it's right that it's for the... Can correct me if I'm wrong, Omar, for the 24-25 season... But at the moment, obviously, you know, it's the three clubs that are the uh, uh, are still the pillars, the foundations, which is Real, Barca and Juve. And, and I'd be really interested in your thought, Omar, if that's OK, um, around, you know, those three historical clubs. In effect, Barca, I don't believe, effectively aren't going to necessarily qualify for knockout stages of Champions League. Juve are in serious trouble. Real are the only ones that are going to go through. And at the same time, what we've seen also in the last few days that you might have uh, captured as well is the EPL charter, the Premier League charter uh, inside the Premier League handbook has actually had this um, uh, owner's charter, which effectively sets um, the, the owners and controllers of Premier League clubs to sign up to these declarations, which include, number one, loyalty to the football pyramid, number two, or the elements at least are important for the Super League element, that uh, qualification is only by sporting merit. But number three, also not to engage in the creation of any new competition formats outside of the EPL regulations. So you can imagine there's a moving feast here where it seems very unlikely anytime soon that any of the English clubs um, and others are going to be signing up to the league. Whilst at the same time, the Super League are very much going forward, looking to challenge UEFA in the European courts. But there's always a query over practically how that might happen. Ultimately, we talked about at the time, didn't we, that the major downfall was this closed league, that there was no promotion relegation, that they would devalue the local domestic leagues to a large extent too. Um, but, you know, there's, there's plenty of moving parts and nuance and everything that seems to have happened over the last few weeks. Yeah, well, fascinating. And, and yeah, I guess all these legal processes take a bit of time, but the fact that they have an ambition for, for 2024, as you say, is when the Champions League launches this new format, there'll be new distribution and, and so on, then... You know, I suppose that that's a deliberate choice of timing, and the point you make around you know these teams struggling. So if I look at our World Super League rankings, which ranks teams around the world in, in one league table, Juventus at the moment are 29th best team in the world. They're below the likes of Freiburg, Real Betis, Union Berlin, um, Newcastle, all, all rated would be kind of small favourites against Juventus at the moment, which just shows how far they've fallen. I think they were eliminated last night as well. And, in the Champions League, they were even at risk of not even making the Europa League. So, yeah, I think that's you know, it's not a position when you want to communicate your goals. I think, yeah, as, as you said about the Premier League, that there's not a chance at all of Premier League clubs joining any breakaway now. I think that's that's gone probably for generations, if not longer. Um, I think if I if I was in the shoes of Juve, Barca, Real Madrid, I think what I'd be thinking about. Um, and they've obviously articulated um, the fact that they think you know, the Premier League is a bit of a, from their perspective, a bit of an evil in, in European football. Uh, and, and if they kind of truly believe that, what I would be doing in their shoes is really trying to um, attract clubs from mid and smaller sized European leagues. So I, I'd be turning to an Ajax, I'd be turning to uh, a Legia Warsaw, Dinamo Zagreb, you know, clubs of these 
um, you know, these big clubs in other markets that have just been totally squeezed out of elite European football in the last um, kind of 15, 20 years. Maybe Ajax would be an exception, but, but certainly, you know, you, you can think of countless clubs in all these um, usually kind of um, central, southern and, and eastern European markets that I, I think would be, you know, genuinely, I think a, a lot of the, some of them might be up for playing in a, in a more um, European competition because, again, I, I've used... Um, uh, kind of Dinamo Zagreb there as an example but you know they're they I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying they're going to finish bottom of their Champions League group they've done great to qualify um, but they're not really competitive at a European level but perhaps they will see interest in a, a league that is pan-European that they could compete in um, you know and, and hoover up some of the revenue that's generated at a more European level rather than just at a Croatian level which is obviously a very very small market and they're never going to be able to there's never going to be the broadcast income for, for a club in that league so yeah I I and again, I've said well, not I'm in, in support of, of what the three clubs are doing, but I think the approach is totally wrong. And, and I, I was one of those clubs. That's certainly something I'd be thinking about. Um, but yeah, it's it's clearly gonna gonna rumble on. I, I'm just not convinced. I will see it see it come to fruition. I, I just think there's just too much historical capital in in the Champions League, and and I think even fans of those clubs just wouldn't care if those teams are playing in another competition and fundamentally fans have to care because if fans don't care then where's that money going to come from where the subscription is going to get paid where the where, why the sponsor is going to stump up the cash for a competition that people don't watch or don't care about and should become glorified friendly so i still think we're a very long way away from from that competition being launched i think it's an interesting one because burnt right if i've said his name right and i probably haven't um has, has been suggesting that actually the issue is is that the real elite clubs need to be getting together in order to be able to play more matches because that's what everybody wants, which actually is sort of antithetical to your view that actually if the top English clubs aren't going to be anywhere near this for the foreseeable future, um, it, it's not going to necessarily be the cream of European elite that is going to be potentially playing. And that leads obviously on to all the issues of whether you could have two <clears throat> competing leagues, never mind uh, one league where all the teams compete uh, within. So I think there, there is lots of interesting structural issues on the horizon. He's actually giving an interview next week at Web Summit with um, David Ornstein from The Athletic. So that's going to be a really interesting one. I'm going to try and live tweet that because I'm actually going to be there. So um, uh, I'll be uh, hopefully providing a bit of insight or rather plagiarism of whatever they say um, and uh, putting out that putting that out into the ether. But if we if we go from Super League, um, Omar, would you prefer to go to Super Coach or Super Players first? Um, uh, I'll leave it to your discretion. Yeah, should we go to Super Players? Um, mm. so this is a, uh, off the back of a piece that my colleague Ben Marlowe wrote on 21st Group website um, this week, which is essentially looking at the role of superstars in, in growing value in competitions and and the real emphasis on that as an overall strategy in the last, um, very noticeably in the last kind of four or five years. So the examples he referenced were, you know, Live Golf is is an example of uh, a competition that's obviously tried to kind of seize superstars as a means to kind of make itself credible. Uh, and obviously you can argue what exactly the end goal is there, but certainly they've recognised that having superstars is really the only way to have credibility and to have attention on it um so they've kind of spent a huge amount of money to acquire those superstars uh he also gave the example of the big bash cricket league in in australia which if you go back 10 years or so had a good chunk of of the world's best players but that's been measurably in decline in the last three or four years um through a series of kind of poor decisions that were that were made uh, uh, by the, the competition organizers there 
um, and that has kind of deflated the value of the overall competition. Uh, and so to bring it to football, it's um, I think the the, the the view is that, you know, Gen Z, Gen Alpha have a much closer affinity to players rather than teams. And therefore, it's becoming more and more important for uh, competitions to not just grow the brand of their teams, but, but grow the brand of their players. And if I think about the Premier League over, you know, last 20 years, which really kind of been massively successful and, and grown into the world's best and richest league. It's actually not really done that off the back of superstar players. It's never... I don't. I think um, Premier League players. I'm trying to think if they've won the Ballon d'Or. I think Ronaldo maybe did it at United, but um, other than that, obviously, most have been in La Liga. Uh, and you could even argue, you know, in some cases, um, you know, the best player in the world has been in Bundesliga. You know, kind of Lewandowski, or uh, has been in in Liga at PSG, maybe even at Italian clubs from time to time, but not never really in the Premier League. Um, and that that. What's interesting about the Premier League now is that in its growth, it's got like a really high share. I forget the exact number. I'll just try and get it up here. Um, I think we have got it here. We, so our model reckons have got 42 of the world's best 100 players, which is twice as many as um, La Liga um, and Bundesliga. It's, it's, it's more than La Liga and Bundesliga combined, actually. Um, and so it is moving to more of a superstar league. I think that a player like Erling Haaland you know, has that potential to be a real kind of... Um, generational player um, that kind of, you know, every, everyone is drawn to watch and therefore it kind of grows the overall overall value of the league as well um, and kind of helps the Premier League on that, you know, um, uh, happy cycle, I suppose, of, of attracting more eyeballs, growing more revenue and, and so on. Uh, but the example that Ben threw out was, it was really on the Bundesliga, which has the lowest wages to turnover revenue of, of the big five um, at 65% compared to 71% in Premier League, 74% in La Liga and and probably close to unsustainable levels in, in the other two leagues. Uh, and the big question for the Bundesliga is, yeah, they're really stuck in this moment where Bayern are so dominant. They uh, probably lost their biggest superstar, or two of their biggest superstar players in, in Holland and, and Lewandowski. Uh, what is, what, what's the strategy there as a league? So, and I think, you, I think leagues need to think about that. They can't just necessarily rely on their, their clubs to, um, to operate. I think there needs to be an overall thinking around how you attract some of the talents that would then attract some of the kind of global attention to the league. Um, so yeah, a bit, bit of a kind of long-winded way of saying that superstars are are important there. But um, yeah, it, it just kind of highlights, I think, what the next phase of, of the Premier League might look like, where actually you will start to see more Ballon d'Or winners, more players who, who can kind of be called the world's best um, in, in their positions. I think the interesting thing there, Omar, I was thinking about, as you said, that in terms of the number of the world's top 10 players, top 100 players playing across the top five leagues in the Premier League, having 42 of them, without putting you on the spot, um, generally, uh, and maybe this is just something, you know, maybe the top, who are the top, who, who the 21st group classifies the top five or top 10. But in years gone by, you know, it was, it was pretty much uh, standard that it was always Barca and Real with Messi and Ronaldo effectively and that duopoly stayed that way for a long time obviously with Ballon d'Or and other awards that then followed as a result and then you have that sort of disruption period where um, you know others come through Haaland's now coming Bappe and and others and I'm not sure who else maybe you cl start classifying in that those categories if it's maybe Salah from last year and uh, and others uh, and, and obviously Benzema won Ballon d'Or this year um, just gone so the query now is is that you you know, you, you've got you've you've now already got the changing of the guard. I think that's fair to um, fair to say. Um, and the query is 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 where will the next 
gen or the just the cusp of the next gen of elite players playing obviously in Champions League where are they going to be based and you know got Mbappe with discussions about whether you know he'll be at PSG for the longer term ha- ha- Haaland or Haaland I can't, can't pronounce that right obviously I've been pronouncing him incorrectly for a while now at City and obviously going to be there for a while as well but with the reported uh, release clause for Premier League clubs um, and whether there's then going to be any others that either join as superstars into the EPL or become superstars from being in the EPL or equivalent. And um, I'm fascinated by that sort of uh, differential too. Yeah, so on, on the initial point around, you know, the concentration at the very top, our, our model's got Lewandowski number one at the moment, then De Bruyne, then Holland, then... Benzema, then Mbappe, and actually Thomas Muller still really high, he's, he's sixth in our model. So actually the Premier League's only got two of the top six in, in our model, um, which again points to the fact that they never really had that absolute superstar hall and obviously only joined the league um, this year. So, um, But the depth beneath that, I'm just eyeballing the top 25. I think they've probably got kind of, uh, 15 or so of the top 25 in our, in our model. So it's, it's really been that strength and depth, which has obviously enabled the success of the clubs in, in European competitions in uh, in recent years in particular. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you wonder what the fan of the future is, is going to be looking for and um, and actually, you know, having those kind of unbelievable players is key. And I think that's where, again, as a, as a league, it's really important to think about, yes, talent acquisition, how you get talent into the league, but also how can you help your clubs um, better access talent um, and how do you help your clubs better develop talent? Um, and this is where, again, arguably where some other leagues have an, have an advantage over the Premier League because they can access pretty readily, obviously within the EU, now post-Brexit for the Premier League. And, you know, some may decide and some already do have great access to, um, you know, parts of Parker, for example, where there's obviously a huge amount of talent, but, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily get access to the right opportunity facilities and so on at a young age. So if clubs can, can better access that, that gives you the ability to develop the superstars, which is which is much cheaper than, than acquiring them and much more predictable as well. Uh, and on that development front is something that the Premier League's done really well in the last um, kind of ten years or so with the Triple P program, where we are now seeing a, a really, really steady stream of high quality English players. And you know we haven't really had that um, for maybe forever, certainly not for a long period of time. Um, so someone like Phil Foden, you know, our model rates him as the 18th best player in the world. He's a he's a product of uh, that Triple P system. Uh, and I think you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold at 20, Raheem Sterling, perhaps a bit, um, perhaps not quite triple P, but still, um, you know, 21st in our model. So all these players, you know, you, if you can produce them, you give yourself the best possible chance of perhaps producing an outlier um, that then is that superstar that's on the billboards, that's the kind of marquee player for the league. So, yeah, I think these big leagues obviously need to think about it. La Liga's obviously really kind of had a bit of an existential crisis since losing uh, Messi and Ronaldo. And, and I think this is only going to become more and more relevant. So we've we've talked about um, super leagues. Uh, we've talked about super players or superstar players. Um, the the other part of the great title actually for your um, for the talk tonight actually um, is uh, super coaches in a way. And um, I think you were going to uh, touch on a couple of examples um, or one particular example of um, sort of managerial uh, merry-go-round at a number of clubs, but obviously the latest one with Gerard leaving Villa um, and who Villa effectively targeted and um, uh, in his credentials. Yeah, I was just kind of really interested in, um, you know, the moment Gerard got sacked, the, the kind of first name that Villa were linked to was uh, Pochettino, who I think most would consider, you know, a world-class manager. And then they've gone and got uh, Unai Emery, who you know, most people would consider a world-class manager as well. Um, and 
I, I'm just kind of really fascinated by clubs who are not Champions League clubs and, and actually, you know, Premier League mid-table clubs who actually spend a disproportionate amount of their budget on the manager. And part of me feels like it's a probably underutilised strategy. And, and I know it is hard for clubs to sometimes attract those coaches, but the area where I've seen it work, well, the club has seen it work really well is obviously Leeds with Bielsa. Uh, you know, they're a championship club, um, hired Bielsa, spent a lot of money on him relative to the squad. And, you know, obviously had huge success, particularly in the context of, you know, you think of the amount of coaches that Leeds have had since they were relegated from the Premier League and whatever it was, 2003, 2004 or, or so. Um, you know, none of them have had any kind of level of success and then Bielsa really kind of turns it around. So um, I'm really interested to see how Unai Emery does. He's, he's clearly like a, a world-class coach. I know he didn't have an amazing time at Arsenal, but the fact was, you know, super competitive in the, in the big six. He certainly didn't do terribly. I think he'd probably, probably say he did okay um, at, at Arsenal, although maybe Arsenal fans might take a different view of that. Um, so, yeah, and I just think, yeah, I, I think it's potentially an underutilized strategy. If you think about a couple of um, coaches that aren't, oh, sorry, are on the market at the moment that are kind of perhaps those world-class coaches. So Tuchel would be one, obviously Champions League winner, Pochettino, Champions League finalist. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, I think, Le- Leicester City, for example, who obviously, who knows what will happen with Brendan Rodgers, it'd be really interesting to see those clubs go after though that level of coach because I think they can be transformative and actually you can, you know, potentially, you know, tilt your budget towards the coach. I think the, the big challenge that you have, I suppose, is some of those coaches may demand a certain quality of, of player to work with. And that's what you get. You need things to be kind of thrashed out when you, um, when you agree a deal. But yeah, I, I'm kind of, I, I think certainly from my perspective, it'd be interesting to do a bit more research on, on the impact that, these superstar coaches can and, and do have at particularly mid-table teams because they're often linked and associated with Champions League level teams. The question I had as well, uh, um, I guess, is you know you've, you've you've got obviously some real superstar managers on the the sidelines at, at the moment. At, at what point do they uh, need to get back in the game? Is, is the truth? I know it's, it sounds actually a bit counterintuitive because we always talk about the fact that. Harry Goran continues and there's always plenty of, um, um, I guess, uh, dismissals at different varying levels of, of the Premier League um, order. But, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, ultimately, for the probably for the top six teams, could, would I be right in saying all the managers are relatively stable and um, not bulletproof in truth? But what I mean is, is that then obviously there are plenty of teams outside of the, um, of the Premier League. But if that style um, of play of... Um, uh, of recruitment suits potentially Tuchel or uh, Pochettino. Um, do, would they then at some point need to go in at a slightly lower level um, to prove value and, and worth and everything else? Yeah, and there's not many clubs in, in Europe that you know can pay the salaries even of an Aston Villa. You know, um, off the top of my head, I wouldn't know. I mean, Aston Villa will certainly be one of the 30 richest clubs in Europe. Maybe, maybe not quite the top 20, but certainly between that 20 and 30. So, you know, when you consider top six plus maybe like an Everton and a Newcastle, you know, some of the deals that they might be able to strike with new sponsors, you know, that, that, that takes kind of eight or nine of, of the top 20 wealthiest clubs. And then, you know, other clubs are also trying to do their own thing. Look at Barcelona and Xavi and so on, maybe trying to build it. So there aren't that many opportunities, which means the Premier League is, is always going to be the most attractive one. And there's always a pretty high turnover of coaches. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I, to the question of how long, you know, can you be out the game? I think um, 
probably not too long. And I think that's probably why you end up seeing coaches often getting uh, punditry deals and, and, you know, there's a couple of them maybe, you know, the World Cup just trying to make themselves more visible because I suppose, you know, you look at some coaches out there, the fact that Chelsea hired Graham Potter, for example, um, I, I think Potter's a phenomenal coach from everything I've read and from everything I've seen. Um, but, you know, he was certainly flavour of the month to a degree, given how well Brighton were doing. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be flavour of the month when you're, when you're sat um, you know, on, on the sidelines, not having had a job for a few months. Great stuff. Well, talking about sitting on the sidelines for at least a few weeks, it's great to have you back. And um, yeah, awesome to, to chat as always. And uh, looking forward to chatting on the various matters that I'm sure will crop up this week, um, uh, next week on the, on the pod. Very good. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Paul. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.